speeding bullets. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 24 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, I am going to cover episodes 15 and 16 of season 1 of The Adventures of Superman. The first episode I'm going to cover on this show is going to deal with some international intrigue as Jimmy stumbles onto a German plot to steal some radium. A very intricate plot involving Stephen Carr, who will dress up as two characters, a man and a woman, and another character that has... and a couple characters that are twin brothers. So, we're going to have some duality in our first episode, and then in our second episode tonight, we're going to take a stroll on the creepy side as... We visit Madame Selina and her wax museum as she creates death sculptures and and predicts the deaths of the wealthy and famous in the city of Metropolis. So, before we get into things, I'm going to take a quick break, play a promo, and then I'm going to come back with Double Trouble. Hang around. It's time for some thrilling heroics. A brand new podcast on TwoTrueFreaks.com. Keep flying. A Firefly podcast. We aim to do the impossible, cover every episode of Joss Whedon's science fiction space opera western, and that makes us mighty. We've found as fine a crew as ever populated the podcasting verse. I told them I had a job, they said yes. Didn't much care what it was. So join me, Andrew Leyland. I fought for the independence. May have been the losing side, not so sure it was the wrong one. I'm joined by a man too pretty to die, Mr. Paul Spataro. And last, but by no means least, a man with a mighty fine hat, Shepherd Bill Robinson. So join us on TwoTrueFreaks.com for Keep Flying, a Firefly podcast. We aim to misbehave. Alright folks, we're going to move right into things with Double Trouble. Original broadcast date was December 26, 1952. Writer was Eugene Solo. Director was Tommy Carr. Guest cast is Howard Chamberlain as Dr. Albert Schumann and Fisher. Selma Jackson as Colonel Jake Redding. Tom Keane as Major Lee. Rudolph Anders as Dr. Rudolph Albert. John Baer as Kruger. Stephen Carr as Count Vado von Kleben and Madame Charpentier. John Crawford as the ambulance driver and Jimmy Dodd as Jake the Fingerprint Man. Also, Ross Ford as The Henchman. And now for our synopsis, brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. A ship is docked at Metropolis Harbor, and an ambulance waits outside of the United States Custom Area. Otto Van Kleben is on board in his guise of Madame Charpentier. Former Nazi espionage agent Fisher, an associate of Dr. Rudolf Albrecht, is dressed as a health official in search of Von Kleben because he has an item that is very important to Albrecht. Von Kleben then kills Fisher after a brief discussion with the spy. Meanwhile, Jimmy Olsen is waiting to get an interview with his favorite movie star, Denise Dario, thanks to Lois Lane. Jimmy encounters Madame Charpentier. Young man. Jeune homme. Who, me? Mais oui, please. 
you are so kind. And I do not know this country. And I must catch a train quick. And I twist my ankle. You see that ambulance over there? Sure. You will give this box to them, no? It is serum for the doctor. They are most anxious to get it. Sure. It is a matter of life and death. I'll hurry it right over. Be sure to give it to the doctor personally. Sure thing. Oh, I am greatly, you know, dead. Oh, my ankle. Let me give you a hand. Uh, merci. You are so sweet. You the doc? Why? I got some serum. A lady said to give it to the doctor. Well, that's what we've been waiting for. The doc's inside. Yeah? I don't see any doctor in there. Inside. Jimmy! They take him to Dr. Albrecht at gunpoint. Jimmy tells Albrecht that he merely did as the French woman had instructed while waiting for his interview. Who's this boy? He's got what we were sent for. Listen, doctor. Where's the box? I guess this is what you want, though I still don't know what it's all about. Where did you get it? A French lady came out of customs and gave it to me. She said she hurt her ankle or something and had to make a train. So I took it over the ambulance for her. That's all I know about it. That's his story. Quiet. Did this French lady you mentioned give you any inkling as to what was in the box? Yeah, she said it was serum and I was to give it only to the doctor. That's why we brought him here, Doc. It sounded fishy. Look, my name's Olson, Jim Olson. I'm a reporter for the planet. There's my identification. What were you doing on the pier? I was waiting for a friend of mine to get me an interview with a movie star. That sounds perfectly reasonable. Fisher and the Count found themselves in difficulty, so they passed the box to the French lady he speaks of, and here it is. is empty. Fisher is dead. Well, what happened? They just found his body on the boat, in a stateroom, which had been occupied by a Madame Charpentier. Madame Charpentier? Who's she? I leave it to you. Fisher was dead. He couldn't leave the boat. You say the Count never appeared. But out of nowhere, a French lady sends over a box. An empty box. Nobody told us to be on the lookout for a female impersonator. I have only myself to blame for this. I have not yet learned my lesson. In this world, trust no one, absolutely no one. I wish I knew what this was all about. You know too much already, young man. Maybe he hasn't told us all he knows. That's right. Maybe you better find out. What are you gonna do to me? I can assure you that is my least concern at the moment. Thinking Jimmy knows more than he lets on, Albert holds him prisoner in a secret electrified room. Lois Lane had witnessed Jimmy entering the ambulance at the pier. Clark Kent is discussing the situation with Metropolis Police Inspector Bill Henderson. Any word on that ambulance yet? I uh, guess I better let you in on the whole story. It doesn't look so good. What did the boys find out? Well, it was a rented ambulance, and a phony name, of course. They put on their own driver, so we don't know where it went or who or what it carried. Frankly, they uh, didn't leave us a clue to follow. 
Mm-hmm. I've had a feeling right from the first that there was a direct connection between Jim's disappearance in that ambulance and the murder in the stateroom. Did you identify the victim yet? He's the only one we know anything about so far. A small-time confidence man named Fisher. Here's his picture. He used the health officer gag to get on at quarantine. What about Madame Charpentier? Yeah, she boarded the boat at Bremerhaven, Germany. Spoke to no one on the entire trip, never left her stateroom, and completely disappeared after clearing customs. Excuse me. Yes, Henderson speaking. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Bob. Checkup on our passport just came through. Forgery as expected. We've got to find that woman, Inspector. I'm convinced she's the only one that can lead us to Jim. America's a mighty large haystack to find one small needle in. Mm -hmm. It's perfectly obvious that Fisher and that ambulance were on the dock to meet Madame Charpentier. And probably escorted to a prearranged rendezvous. And she decided to double-cross them. That makes sense. There's one point to be explained. Why did the boys in the ambulance let her get away? That's pretty easy. They weren't expecting a woman. That's it. And the woman was no lady. The fingerprints in the stateroom and on the gun were male prints. You didn't tell me anything about that, Inspector. Could I have a set of those prints, if you can spare them? Pick them up at the lab on your way out. By the way, if you're thinking of checking with the police in Germany, we've already tried. Did they identify them? Unfavorable atmospheric conditions reduced the telephotos to complete distortion. We're going to try again in the morning. Tomorrow morning may be too late. There must be some other way. Well, if you happen to bump into Superman, he might give you a hand. You never can tell. Colonel Redding, in charge of Army Intelligence over there, is one of my best friends. I'll see you, Inspector. If you come up with anything, let us know. Superman flies there and meets with an American Army Intelligence Officer, Colonel Jake Redding, as Clark Kent. Hiya, Colonel. Clark, what are you doing here? Just flew in a little mission. Sure, good to see you. Pull up a chair. Good to see you. Mind if I sit here? Not at all. Thanks. Working kind of late, aren't you? Plenty to do over here. Dr. Schumann to see you, sir. Have Dr. Schumann wink, Corporal. Jack, I need your help. Name it. These belong to a fellow who sailed from Bremerhaven on the 9th. He masqueraded as a Madame Charpentier. Can you identify him for me? Well, let's take a look at our files. See what we've got. Let's do. Looks like we're in luck. Let's see. That's a man without a question. Otto von Kleben, 35, formerly Count von Kleben, Lieutenant Wilmarkt, captured by Russians 1944, repatriated in 1947. Here it is. At present employed as orderly in U.S. Base Hospital 991. Dr. Schumann might be able to help us. Okay to check with him? Of course. Send Dr. Schumann in. Guten Abend, Colonel. I have a kleiner favor. Oh, I am sorry. I did not know you were busy. I will see you in the morning. Oh, just a minute, Doctor. I want you to meet... Anything wrong, Clark? You look as if you'd just seen a ghost. I'm sorry? Doctor, this unhealthy-looking character is an old newspaper friend of mine from the States. Clark Kent, Dr. Schumann. How do you do, Herr Kent? Nice to meet you, Doctor. Uh, sit down, Doctor. 
Clark's interested in talking to an orderly you've got working here, Doctor. The name is Von Kleben, Otto Von Kleben. Von Kleben? Hmm. Oh, I am sorry, but that is not possible. Was something wrong? Von Kleben was discharged two weeks ago. Two weeks ago? I am afraid I have no information here as to his present whereabouts, gentlemen. Perhaps I can help you. He docked in the United States this morning. So? Would I be out of turn in inquiring what your interest in this Von Kleben is? Not at all, Doctor. The police found a man murdered in his stateroom, and we have good reason to believe that the murdered man was sent to meet him and escort him ashore. I see. You know the identity of the murdered man? Yes. It was a Nazi espionage agent and a small-time confidence man named Fisher. Fisher, huh? Name strike a bell? Ach, there are so many Fishers in Germany, Colonel. Doctor, you wouldn't by any chance be able to tell us what uh, von Kleben's mission in the United States was, would you? Me? After all, Herr Kent, he was just an orderly here. We have a staff of nearly 1,000 people. Uh, you haven't missed anything around here, have you? I mean, anything of substantial value? What could he have stolen? An X-ray machine? We have no secret formulas that could have been committed to memory either. Nine, I'm afraid Van Kleben's business had nothing to do with the hospital. Well, Colonel, looks like we've reached the end of another blind alley. Sorry, I cannot be of more help, Herr Kent. My business will wait till tomorrow. Guten Abend, gentlemen. That Schumann's a dead ringer for Fisher. Fisher? Yeah, the fellow they found murdered in Von Kleben's stateroom. Oh, Schumann's been working for us a long while. He couldn't be here and dead in the States at the same time. Maybe he has a twin brother. Well, we could check on it. Yeah, I look too much alike. There's some connection somewhere. Who's in charge of medical supplies? Major Lee. Okay if we drop in on him? By all means. He's just across the hall. Clark and Colonel Redding have just gone to see Major Lee, officer in charge of medical supplies, to see if there is anything of value on the Army base. A million dollars worth of radium the size of a peanut is stored in a lead-lined safe near Lee's office. Dr. Schumann was the last man to be seen with it within the last couple of weeks. Lee, Redding, and Clark go to see the radium when Schumann, who is Fisher's twin brother, closes and locks the vault. It is airtight and dark within the structure, giving Clark a chance to unlock the door with Superman's strength. The three men are now free, but unfortunately, Schumann has escaped. Von Kleben had taken one of three trains that had left Metropolis at noon, and the radium was smuggled in a pair of lead-lined earrings worn by his Madame Charpentier persona. Von Kleben was to give them to Dr. Albrecht, whom he had double-crossed. Superman has just found both Von Kleben and the radium. The police have surrounded Dr. Albrecht's residence. The German villain is trying to escape, but he doesn't count on being stopped by Superman. They've got the whole force out there. Never take me alive. Drop that gun, Doctor. You're going to eat those words. Verfluchter Übermensch! Now, what have you done with Jim Olsen? Perhaps you would like to see for yourself. Give him the current. Not so fast. Thanks for a very helping hand. Golly, Superman, do you know how all this started? No, Jim, how? Oh, I was waiting on the pier for Miss Lane to arrange an interview with Dennis Dario, the French movie star. Oh, I'm sorry you missed her. I understand she's very pretty. Right now, you're prettier to me than all the movie stars in the world. Golly. 
Alright, well, first off, let me be the first to say that I really enjoy this episode. I really enjoy the international intrigue that's going on here. We get some mystery as soon as we open this episode as someone in who says he's a health official is coming to meet Stephen Carr's character, Count Otto van von Clavin. Obviously, we know from the summary that this is Fisher. Now, Stephen Carr gets to do a little more than usual in uh, this episode. He's getting to handle a gun this time. And he's going to play villainous characters this time around. Normally, he's been extras or, or good guys. Basically, characters who have been helpful to the Daily Planet staff. This time, Carr gets to stretch his legs a little bit playing a villainous character. And I think he accounts for himself very well. A lot of things are being set up immediately. Lois and Jimmy show up for an interview, and we see these two guys outside of an ambulance. They're looking for somebody, but they're acting very suspicious, and they notice immediately that something isn't right. Now here comes Stephen Carr. Now he's dressed as Madame Charpentier instead of Otto Van Van Kleben. I don't know how many times I'm going to mispronounce those names during the course of this episode, so bear with me. I don't know about the characters in this episode, but Stephen Carr is not convincing me that he's a woman. Early on in this episode, there's not really a lot of dialogue. All of the, at least most of the acting, is being done with looks and glances, and sometimes those looks and glances can tell you a lot more than expositional dialogue. You see the ambulance guys looking nervous. Jimmy is excited. He's He wants to meet his favorite movie actress, and I think Lois is just kind of putting up with him for the short time that we see her. Remember when I said that Von Kleben's disguise wasn't exactly convincing? Well... As you would expect, this disguise convinces Jimmy, who is buying Von Clavin's woman's voice, as she asks her help, and Jimmy's uh, feeling all happy with himself here, as he's smiling broadly, and he's adjusting his bow tie. I'm not sure what he expects to get out of this situation, but he is going to get a little bit more than he bargained for. And this is a strange woman. Strange in the sense that Jimmy doesn't know her, and we know strange to the fact that this is actually a man, but well, that's neither here nor there. Jimmy is apparently in the habit of delivering items, such as strange packages, from strange people. You know, I think throughout this show, he's far too trusting, and that's going to get him into trouble multiple times throughout the course of this show. So, Jimmy brings the serum over to the ambulance man, or at least he's told it's the serum. He doesn't actually know what's supposed to be in the box. But the ambulance man is very suspicious, and, well, Jimmy gets himself caught. You know, poor Jimmy. He seems to get himself into trouble a lot more than Lois does throughout the course of this first season. Jimmy now has been brought to Dr. Rudolph Albrecht, and he doesn't know anything, and Jack Larson does a great job of acting confused. He thinks he's just delivering a package of medical supplies to a doctor. He doesn't know anything else is up here. But as the scene goes on, you can tell from Jimmy's body language that he's getting nervous, and you know he's constantly looking from... One man to the other, he doesn't know what the hell's going to happen to him next. Right here, Jimmy seems like he's in over his head a little. And he willingly gives up his identification because, like I said before, he still thinks Dr. Albrecht is a legit doctor. And then Jimmy starts to get a little worried when Dr. Albrecht opens up the box and it's empty. This is where Albrecht learns that he's been fooled and now Jimmy's in serious trouble as he wants to find out exactly what Jimmy knows and, you know... Why wouldn't he? I mean, I would want to know what's going on if my mail has been delivered improperly. But as we know, what Albrecht is expecting in this package is far more than your ordinary piece of mail. Jimmy gets thrown into this back room, and that's pretty much the last time we see Jimmy until the end of this episode. Apparently by now we know that Jimmy is missing, Clark is worried, Henderson isn't, and 
I'm kind of surprised at the way Henderson is portrayed in this particular episode, as he's not very forthcoming with information, at least not as forthcoming as he usually is. He didn't tell Clark immediately that there was something off about the ambulance, nor did he tell him about the murder in the stateroom. And we're developing a little bit of a mystery here, as we find out Jimmy is missing, the ambulance was rented, and there is still no trace of those who rented the ambulance. In addition, Madame Charpentier never left her stateroom on the ship, and no one has seen her since she left in the cab. The only thing they know is that the dead man is a confidence man named Fisher. And also, this is where we find out that Madame Charpentier's passport was a forgery. And Clark makes the leap of logic that since the men in the ambulance didn't meet with Madame Charpentier, that they weren't expecting a woman. That tells Clark that Madame Charpentier wasn't exactly a woman. And then Henderson drops another bombshell, saying that there were no female prints in the stateroom, just those of a man, and that a man committed the murder. Again, Henderson is withholding vital information. I don't know if he's got some kind of reason for this, but if he does, it's not explained. But I'm just very surprised with the relationship that Henderson seems to have shared with the Daily Planet staffer most of the series. For him to hold back information like this just seems unusual. Now Clark needs some pictures developed quickly, and Henderson chides him that he can get it done faster if he bumps into Superman. But because the plot demands it, Clark happens to have a buddy in charge of intelligence in Germany. And since Metropolis police have no information on the fingerprints, Clark uses this opp the opportunity for when a lab tech goes into the darkroom to change into Superman in what I consider one of the most lackluster changes of the series, as he simply ducks behind the filing cabinet as Clark and emerges as Superman. And then we get an audio mistake on the part of the showmakers. When Superman leaps out of the window, the sound effect for his landing was used instead of the takeoff sound. Oh, so a little snafu there. Now we get the main title theme uh, as Superman flies as he's on his way to Germany. I guess the main title is a little bit longer than the main flying scene, and we need an extended shot of Superman flying over the ocean so we can understand that he is flying overseas. We're going to see now the second of some very long talky scenes in this episode, and these scenes of expositional conversation just seem to bring this episode to a, something of a crawl. And Clark's buddy, Colonel Jake Redding, doesn't really ask too many questions about why the reporter is halfway across the world, away from his usual haunts in Metropolis. And of course, because the plot demands it, and because this episode is only 25 minutes, the military has the information that Clark is looking for. And then... Dr. Schumann comes in the room, and Clark looks at this man as if he has seen a ghost, and rightly so, because the doctor looks exactly like the dead confidence man, Fisher. Apparently, Double is a theme in this episode, as we know from the name Double Trouble, as Stephen Carr plays two characters, Von Clavin and Madame Charpentier, and another actor plays two characters, twin brothers, Fisher and Dr. Schumann. Now, this is where we find that the hospital has some radium, which, this is the atomic era, and... Radium is in very high demand during this episode. Anytime there's something radioactive during this series, it's pretty much radium. Schumann shows his du duplicity by closing them in the safe, and Clark gets them out somehow. The screen was black, and we don't exactly get to see what he did, but he probably used his superpowers to pick the lock. After Clark has gotten what he needs in Germany, Superman flies back to Metropolis by flying from left to right on your television screen. Whenever he flies to someplace... He flies from right to left on your television screen. Now, if you look at the flying shot, the S is backwards. As all they did is, instead of mounting George Reeves on the other side of the screen, 
because the, the pan that they use to fly him, you can only shoot it from one side. Instead of flying him the other direction, they just flip the shot. You know, the backwards S is not as obvious as it would be later in the color episodes. But if you know these shots well enough, and having watched this series by now, I do, you know when to look for it. By the time Clark is back to Metropolis, Henderson has a wire from Germany saying that Schumann has confessed and that he was Fisher's twin brother. He has confessed to the radium theft. And Clark is credited for getting Schumann to confess, and... Henderson suspected Superman helped Clark out, but he doesn't deny it. So I guess Henderson is left to assume that Superman flew Clark to Germany. Superman is off to the rescue, and he lands on a train that is carrying either the Count or Madame Charpentier. Where he's going to find one of the two, and Superman just casually lands on the roof and walks onto the train, and he walks past a train worker who just kind of gets a shocked look and kind of glances, glances at Superman. Just acts very surprised by seeing Superman. I don't remember exactly what he said. I should have written it down. At this point, the madam is back to being a man, and Count Von Clavin is standing on the couch with his gun drawn. He's expecting trouble. And Superman dispatches him with a nice over-the-head flip that I believe George Reeves performed himself. Right before the the flip, there was a very hard cut, but the action was too fast to tell me whether that was a change from Stephen Carr to the stuntman. I can't imagine director Tommy Carr letting his brother do that stunt, especially since Von Clavin is dispatched right off camera giving the stuntman time to kind of either lay there or crawl off the scene while he's out of the shot. <clears throat> Superman doesn't have a ton to say in this episode. As he does his work and kind of moves on, Superman finds the radium in the earrings, thinking that's pretty clever. And he grabs on Clavin, and when he opens the door, the train worker is standing there. Again, no lines from Superman, he's all business, and he just pulls Von Clavin out of the train by his collar. Albert and his associate notice the police presence surrounding his... It's either his office or his apartment. One of the two, but... Albert says that the police will not take him alive, and then Superman barges into the into the door. And the only word I recognize here is Ubermensch, which, from the brief amount of research I've done, means Superman or Overman. There is a universe in the DC multiverse where Superman rules as a member of the Nazi party because he landed in Germany instead of in Kansas, and they call him Overman, so... Maybe Overman is the... Literal translation to Ubermensch. If any of you out there speak German, let me know. Either way, regardless of what the German man said, the criminals are quickly dispatched, Superman finds Jimmy behind the wall, and the episode ends with Jimmy telling Superman he was prettier than all the movie stars in the world. That probably has something to do with the fact that Jimmy was getting electrocuted, or whatever it is Von Clavin and his men were doing to him while he was locked in that room can only assume they were torturing him for information, and I'm sure they weren't very easy on Jimmy because he really didn't know anything, so they had no reason to stop doing whatever it is they were doing. With that being said, that's pretty much it for this episode. Again, a pretty good episode. I enjoyed it. And we're going to take a turn for the creepy as I'm going to take a quick break, play another promo, and then I'm going to come back with Mystery in Wax. Hang around, folks. Star Wars, give me those Star Wars, nothing but Star Wars, don't let them Star Wars, those here in Star Wars, talking about Star Wars on a podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and welcome to... And I'm the Irredeemable Shag. Dude, 
What are you doing? What? Give me those Star Wars as my show. Well, you're part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, so it's really our show. But if you show up on the promo, people will think you're the co-host. I'm not? No, the show will have rotating guests. You just took that idea from my Justice League International podcast. You took that idea from my Secret Origins podcast. And you took that idea from Dead Both and Spies. That was my podcast. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I sang the theme song with you. So? So, technically, I appear on every episode. I'm part of the foundation of this new Star Wars show. That's... That's true. So, you want to take this from the top, or what? <sighs> I'm Ryan Daly. Join me and a galaxy of guest stars on Give Me Those... <coughs> including the irredeemable Shag, whose voice you will technically hear on every episode, on Give Me Those Star Wars... The official Star Wars show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes and Stitcher and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. All right, welcome back, folks. Let's head right into the next episode for that I'll be covering Mystery in Wax. Original broadcast date was January 2nd, 1953. It was written by Ben Peter Freeman and directed by Lee Sholem. Guest cast included Mira McKinney as Madame Selena Dawn, Lester Sharp as Andrew Dawn, and Stephen Carr, wouldn't you know it, as Dr. John Hurley. And here is our synopsis brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. Famous psychiatrist Dr. John Hurley has received an invitation to a private unveiling of the newest wax figure created by Madame Selena Dawn. Madame Selena has recently made statues of prominent men whom she has predicted will die in six months. Good evening, my friends. This is a sad occasion for one of you and for me. My third death figure has been completed. It now becomes my unhappy duty to reveal to you the person who within the next six months will die. Curtain. Curtain opens and a sheet is removed to reveal a sculpture in the form of Dr. Hurley himself. Hurley is later seen in a dazed and shocked state as he walks through the streets at night before jumping off a pier to his death in the waters of Metropolis Harbor. News of Dr. Hurley's death is all over the city. Daily Planet editor Perry White is surprised by Hurley's actions. I knew John Hurley well. He was happy, healthy, successful. He had no reason to kill himself. Neither did Herbert Fairweather or John Martin. Who? The two others who committed suicide. Clark thinks Madame Selina had something to do with it. Yes, she predicted all the deaths, you know. Kent, I'm surprised at you. Do you actually believe that fortune teller has supernatural powers? No, Chief. Of course not, but... Sam. It's an old charlatan's trick. They make thousands of predictions, and if one of them happens to come true, superstitious idiots are taken in. That's right. But Madame Selina made only three predictions. She might have made 300. We only heard about the ones that came true. No, Chief. I've investigated this. So have the police, and they gave her a clean bill of health. I'd still like to talk to her. Go ahead. Talk is cheap. I'll go with you. I thought you didn't see anything in this. But you do, so I'll just go along for the ride. Lois Lane and Clark Kent, seeing something is amiss, go to meet with Madame Selina. Her husband, Andrew, leads them to her. Clark and Lois go down a corridor where they see wax replicas of John Hurley and the other men whom Madame Selina had said would die. I am Herbert Fairweather. I died by my own hand in January of 1949, four months after Madame Selina predicted my death. 
I am John Martin. I departed this life by drowning in April 1951, exactly six months to the day following Madame Salinas' death prediction. Clark, this is weird. Madame puts on quite a show, doesn't she? I am Dr. John Hurley. That's enough. I know they're just recorded voices, but it's a little too gruesome for my taste. During the conversation with Lois and Clark... At first, I was not going to see you. Your newspaper called me a fortune teller. Well, aren't you? I am not. Sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. Forgive me. You come to visit me and I am rude. How may I serve you? We'd like to learn more about your power to predict death. A vision comes to me. I hear a voice. It says, create a wax portrait of this one. Within six months, he will die. About those three that did die. Within six months, as I predicted. Yes. They were all quite famous. Let's see, one was an ex-mayor of Metropolis, one was a radio commentator, one was a psychiatrist. Did you know them all quite well? On the contrary, I never saw them before. And about this, uh, this voice? It comes to me as from another world. Not from a phonograph record, like the voices in your hall of death? <clears throat> Any further questions? Just one more, if you don't mind. Have you received any death visions lately? You expect to? How can I tell? Well, if you can't, who can? <coughs> Should I receive a command to make another death figure, I will invite you to the unveiling, Mr. Kent. Thank you. And you, Miss Lane. Thank you so much. So nice of you to visit me. Nice of you to see us. Clark has discovered that the men in Madame Selena's wax portraits are around the same height and weight. In the meantime... Here you are, kids. Read them and weep. I got one, too. So Madame Selena had another vision. You know what this means, don't you? No, what? It could be one of us. The trio was shocked to see a statue of none other than Perry White himself standing before the audience. Chief, it's you. What kind of nonsense is this? Don't worry, Chief. Who's worried? It's ridiculous, utter nonsense. And I'll tell that woman so. I'm sorry, my friend. And you're going to be a lot sorrier. I don't like practical jokes. Unfortunately for you, it's not a joke. It's a farce. And, madam, you are a fraud. Now, Chief, wait a minute. You keep out of this. Before my paper gets through with you, madam, you're going to be run out of town. Afterwards, Clark is unsuccessful in convincing his editor to have a bodyguard on hand. Me have a bodyguard? Are you crazy? Why don't you play it safe? Bah! Now look, Chief, I don't for a moment believe in her clairvoyant powers, but you must admit her three predictions did come true. Maybe Clark's right, Chief. For the last time, I am not going to jump into Metropolis Harbor. I am not going to have a bodyguard, and that's final! Later that night, Metropolis Police Inspector Bill Henderson has given Lois and Clark some terrible news. Oh, Clark. White something. Yes. Inspector, I just can't believe it. Well, the clerk at the newspaper club said he saw him leave just after 2 a.m. Said he looked kind of wild or, 
Or drunk. Drunk? Perry White was never drunk a day in his life. Well, several people saw him staggering down the street. They identified him from his photographs. And the patrolman on the waterfront saw him jump off the pier. It isn't true. Clark, it just can't be true. The chief wouldn't commit suicide. Of course he wouldn't. Come on, I'll drive you home. I'll see you later. When he meets Inspector Henderson at the harbor... Now look here, Inspector. See there? Come here. See along the top of the pilings? Yeah. With a rope, a man could easily pull himself up out of the water and hide there. What are you getting at? Andrew Dawn. He's about the same build and height as Perry White and those three others. Andrew Dawn, who's he? Madam Selena's husband. It's fantastic, Inspector, but it just could be. What could be? Madam Selena's husband impersonating him. If she made wax masks... What are you talking about? The Wax Museum. We'd better check it. We already have. We went over from top to bottom. Well, let's go over it again. It's a waste of time. You're way off the beam on this. I man. don't think so, and I'll tell you why as we go. Come on. Oh, all right. Lois sneaks into the Wax Museum just as it's about to close. Andrew Dawn locks up and helps his wife to exit from a secret door in the gallery's floor. Selena and Andrew go into another room for coffee while Lois tries to find out what is beneath Madame Selena's terrifying displays. She is very surprised by what she finds. Perry White, John Hurley, and the men who had apparently killed themselves are alive and trapped in cages. Madame Selena is keeping them as part of her demented exhibition of living art. Meanwhile, the insane Madame Selena has placed Lois in an empty cage. <laughs> Thought you had me trapped, huh? Thought you were smarter than I. Well, look at you now. You're a member of my private wax museum, and you'll stay there till you die. Stop <laughs> it. Aren't they beautiful? Stop it, I said. <laughs> my private museum, living wax figures. <laughs> Selena, pull yourself together. You're a mouse, a scared little mouse. Look at me. <laughs> I've got everything because I've got courage, money, power. Everyone fears me. And do you know why? Because they're afraid I'll make a death figure of <laughs> Selena! There's someone at the door. As Henderson examines Andrew and Selena's living quarters in the Wax Museum, Clark proves his theory as Superman. The Man of Steel finds Lois and Perry imprisoned within Ma with Madame Selena's other victims. The Man Selena attacks Superman, but she and her husband are no match for Superman and Inspector Henderson. With Selena and Andrew Dawn in prison for using their Sculpture of Death scheme to give their Wax Museum publicity, Perry, Lois, Inspector Henderson, and Clark can celebrate the fact that everyone Selena had captured is now free. All's well that ends well. I've got a little bump here where Don knocked me out just before he took me to the museum. Don and his wife will get 20 years for abduction. They must be out of their minds. Don isn't out of his mind. I still can't believe it. Abducting four people and making it look as though they committed suicide, when all the time that, that awful woman had them locked in her private waxworks. Now, Kent had the answer. That crazy Selena made masks of the people she predicted would die, and her husband impersonated them. Made it look like they committed suicide. But why? Publicity. She did a land office business. Well, Kent, looks like a party. What in blazes happened to you at the museum? Oh, me? Yeah, you just disappeared. You know Clark, Inspector, he's always disappearing. 
I'll bet you were hiding behind one of those wax figures. <laughs> behind Superman, Chief. Yeah. This episode, like some others, brings the creepy. And it starts with an invitation to Madame Selena's Wax Museum. And she's going to unveil the next wax statue of the next person who's going to die. If that doesn't make you want to stay home and not go to the wax museum, nothing will. But, of course, everybody who gets an invitation goes to the museum because they all want to know who the next person is going to die. I'm assuming they want to, they're hoping to find out it's not going to be them. Well, anyway, as Selena speaks, she speaks in a creepy monotone as well as she is unveiling her next death figure. And she calls unveiling this her unhappy duty. So it's nice to see that at least publicly, she's not happy to announce the deaths of these seemingly innocent people. And the curtain goes up. And it's Stephen Carr! Did you really expect it to be anyone else? The man has been in just about every episode of the guest star. But it's Dr. John Hurley, who is played by Stephen Carr. And it's getting interesting that from these last few episodes, I'm starting to recognize Stephen Carr on site now. I was never able to do that before, but now that I'm taking note of him being in just about every episode, I know where to spot him. And it's getting kind of fun. And apparently he's terrified as the two people before him have presumably died after Selena made some death statues. Again, don't answer the invitation to, to the unveiling of the death statue. It might be you. That is practical advice that any of you can apply to your own lives. If someone's creating death statues and they invite you to the unveiling, stay home, watch some Netflix or something, or listen to my podcast. Next, we get a very dark and foreboding shot as Hurley has apparently thrown himself in the water in what has been ruled a suicide. Yeah, there you go, buddy. Make the make the crazy sculptress's bizarre prediction come through by throwing yourself into the water. Good job. Well, anyway, now we go to the Daily Planet building, and Perry is upset because Perry knew John Hurley well. Of course he does. The entire staff knows everybody well. And Lois doesn't care, really, about the death sculptures until Clark shows some interest, and that's a very Fleischer-esque and early comics trope. Lois can be completely bored over the topic and not care in the slightest until Clark shows some interest and and then she's all about it. Personally, I prefer a more independent Lois that follows her own leads. And like and we saw that she's capable of it because in the mind machine she was able to get all the information she needed to put a powerful criminal behind bars. She didn't write any of it down, but she dug it all up. They go over to the Wax Museum and the accuracy of wax statues is creepy by itself, but the Hall of Death can be even creepier. And even creepier than the statues of dead men, are there are recordings of the men's voices saying how they died. And all those voices are distinct, and it creeps Lois out that somehow she got the men's actual voices for these recordings. By the end of the episode, we'll f I guess we'll find out how that happened. Like I said, Lois is appropriately creeped out. I'm pretty sure I would be too, and she has had enough of this display as when Clark pulls away the drapes from Dr. Hurley's wax figure, she is quick and she shuts it and doesn't want to hear anymore. Personally, for me, the first statue with its eerie voice would have been enough. I wouldn't have gone on to statue number two. I'd have either gone to talk to Madame Selena or I'd have gone home. A bit about the lighting in this scene. When Lois and Clark went to the Hall of Death, Lois and Clark are in shadow for most of the time, and it just adds to the foreboding nature of of the scene and add to the atmosphere of 
the Hall of Death, as if being in the Hall of Death wasn't foreboding enough. I did find it interesting that the first two men died months after Selena predicted their deaths. Curly was, at most, only a few hours. So, I'm wondering what's going on here and why his death was so soon after Selena had predicted that he would die. I love how offended Madame Selena is when the planet accused her of being a fortune teller. Apparently, there is a difference between fortune tellers and psychics and those kinds of things. I personally do not know what the differences are, but apparently there are differences. The way she explains this to Lois and Clark is that she receives visions of who is going to die. And she doesn't like Lois very much. And I'm going to assume that's because Lois has done nothing but insult her. But she seems rather taken with Clark, who is showing the rare quality of politeness. You know, something Lois isn't. After their talk, Madame Selina just lets out that sinister laugh that would send chills up anybody's spine. Apparently, the night after the interview, Selina had another vision. And she's having these visions kind of quick now. You know, at first people took months to die, and now... They're dying in hours, and she's having a new vision almost immediately. I guess a day or so passed, because she had to have time to print up the, the invitations and get them to the planet, and she had to have enough time to actually build a wax figure. She sent invitations to Perry, Lois, and Clark. Jimmy's not in this episode, by the way. And Clark puts together that the three victims have had similar heights and weights. And Clark assumes it could be one of them. I'll get back to why there's really only one person it could be after we reveal who the one person is. Madame Selena comes into the room at the art gallery and she looks around, almost as if she's making sure that everyone is there. During the unveiling, again, uh, Madame Selena is whipping out her creepy death predictor voice and apparently he saw the figure with his x-ray vision and he was going to get up. What he was going to do, I don't know, but he was going to get up. But Lois holds him down because there's no way he could actually see anything. Here comes the next victim, Perry White. Now, here's why we shouldn't be surprised that it was Perry. Clark had earlier said that all of the victims had similar heights and weights. About 5'8", about 160 or so pounds, and they're all men. Of the three, Perry is the only one who fits that bill. Clark is much taller, and Lois is a woman. So, we probably should have realized early on that the only one of those three who could have been fit for a death statue was probably Perry White. And this is where Perry absolutely blows his top. Perry gets angry and he threatens Madame Selena, and that anger carries over into the next scene as Lois and Clark want to protect him by getting him a bodyguard. But Perry, in his infinite stubbornness, he's just not having it. There is a little bit of comedy here as Perry smacks his desk with his fist and knocks the ashtray off his desk and sprays himself in the eye with the ashes. And he's kind of squinting his eyes and closing him as if he's got something in his eye and now all of a sudden he's very concerned that this might be what kills him. But apparently it's not. He lives through his temper tantrum here. I have expected him to let out a great Caesar's ghost, but he hasn't. Apparently he's more concerned about becoming a ghost himself. I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. But this shot of Clark answering his phone while in bed, I believe is reused from The Secret of Superman. As Clark's groggy hello Sounds very similar to the opening of that episode. And while Inspector Henderson is is cut in in his office on the phone, summoning Lois and Clark to police headquarters, we never hear Clark say anything. All he does is get out of bed, just like he did in, in Secret of Superman. That time he had a conversation with Jimmy's mother. 
This time, nothing. So I'm guessing they just reused those two clips and moved on with the episode. Apparently, Henderson has what we're to assume is Perry White's shoe, and Clark identifies it as such. People say they saw a drunken Perry White jump into the harbor. So much for being the person to die within six months. It seems more like six hours, just like with Dr. Hurley. And Clark is still working, and he realizes that all four of Madame Selena's victims have jumped off the same pier. Apparently, the police didn't notice that the first time that they all jumped off the same pier. And now he's ready to accuse Madame Selena of something. And Lois must really be upset, as she has had trouble writing Perry's obituary, and she acts like she doesn't want to follow Clark to the pier to check out what's going on. But she's still Lois. She's still going to find a way to look into what's going on, and she goes to the wax museum to figure things out. She hides behind this really creepy-looking zombie-like figure and looks like something out of an old monster movie. That's probably where the figure came from. I wouldn't be surprised. And this is when she discovers Madame Selena coming out of a hatch in the floor. Hmm. Something's afoot, she notices, and... You know, when it's her time to go and move the little table out of the way, perhaps Lois should have watched more closely. She, would have ha she wouldn't have had to stumble around to find out how to move the table and to reveal the trapdoor. And... As evidenced by the what she does once she is down inside the cellar after going through the secret trapdoor, Lois can really use a lesson in stealth. And it's funny, because she's, even though it's creepy, she's stumbling around in the dark and knocking things over. And when she turns on the lights, what does she find? She finds dead men in cages. Well, they're not quite dead, they're alive. The de I guess the dead versions are upstairs in the Hall of Death. But because of Lois's stumbling and bumbling around the dark room she, and knocking stuff over, she hears someone coming down the stairs because Madame Selena is sure somebody is down there. I mean, it's a dark basement. I guess it could have been mice or something, but nope. She is going to assume that it's a person. And she makes that leap. I'm not sure how because Lois was very careful to put the hit the button at the bottom of the stairs and put the little table back where it belongs. But anyway, Lois is found quite comedically as... Madame Selena, who's hysterical at this point, slaps the table, causing it to rotate on a fulcrum and hits Lois with it. She screams out in pain. You know, Lois, maybe if you were able to take your pain quietly, you would have been okay. But nope. She screams out in pain, and Madame Selena gleefully knocks Lois out with some chloroform. And Clark is speculating here about how much of a good detective he is, because he's accusing Selena's husband, Andrew Don, of impersonating the victims and simulating their suicides wearing a mask and climbing up a rope. I know that's a simplistic view of what actually went down, but I've already played the clip, so... Bottom line, what happens is, Andrew impersonates somebody, wearing their face, jumps in the river, and somehow gets the victim back to Madame Selena's basement. Now that Lois is captured and her plans seem to be working, at least... According to her mind, she is going full evil villain with that evil cackle that reminds me of an old publisher I used to work for. Jesus, I used to hear that woman's cackle from across the building. Still gives me the creeps just thinking about it. Well, anyway, she is taunting an unconscious Lois who can't hear her. So what's the point of taunting her? Taunting is only works if the person who you're taunting can actually hear it. But Lois can't. She's out like, all right. Andrew is trying to get her under control, but she won't stop. I mean, this woman is nuts. And I just realized, we're about 20 minutes into this episode, and I'm still not sure what she's trying to accomplish. Apparently, the doorbell rings, and that can get her to stop cackling like a deranged hyena. 
And that's Clark and Henderson, and they have some questions that they want answered. So Henderson goes with Andrew Dawn in to, to meet Selena as Clark decides he needs to tie his shoes. The episode didn't show it, but I'm guessing at this point, Clark has used some of his x-ray vision on the floor, and he can see what's going on down in the basement. After Clark is untying his shoes, he changes into Superman and goes down to the cellar. Even now, at episode 16, we are still playing with the trope that people don't know who Superman is. As Selena freaks out and asks who he is before shooting him in the back. This is actually the first and probably the only time that somebody doesn't shoot Superman in his chest. Selena is screaming awfully as Henderson gets her under control. You know, Superman decks Andrew. You know, maybe he could have decked Selena just to shut her up because that's the kind of scream that's going to go straight through you. Apparently, according to Henderson, when they get back to the Daily Planet, she did this all for publicity. Publicity. She wanted people to know about her wax museum. This seems to be a long way to go to drive up some business, and wax museums are popular things. I mean, about nine years ago, I went to Las Vegas. I went to the Madame Tussauds Wax Museum, and it cost me 25 bucks to get in there. I don't know what it costs now, but it cost me 25 bucks then. And apparently these wax museums can do some pretty good business. So I'm not exactly sure why she felt the need to drive up publicity. I mean... People are curious about these figures, and they'll go and see them. Especially if you're if you're pretty good at what you do. And from what we've seen, she is. I don't know. I'm not convinced she needed it to drive up publicity. But maybe there was another rival that did work just as well as she did. I don't know. But that's all we know. That's all we need to know. And it didn't work. And as the episode comes to a close, everybody gives Clark a ton of crap for not being around. And I love how Perry demands where he's been hiding. And, you know, George Reeves, as he does so well, he gives another nod to the audience when he says that he was hiding behind Superman. That was a very good and very fun episode. Especially if you like some of the more creepy stuff. But even if you don't like the creepy stuff, this episode was pretty fun. You know, the villain's motivations were a little bizarre. But, you know, she was a very one-note villain, and it was enjoyable. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to tell me how much you enjoyed this episode, or didn't enjoy this episode, as the case may be, you can send me some email. Feedback is always welcome. You can reach me at manofscreen at gmail.com. You can find me in the Facebook group. Just search for the Man of Screen podcast. You can find the show on Twitter. My feed is at manofscreencast. Or you can leave me a review on iTunes. That'll help others find the show. So, next time. I'm going to cover episodes 17 and 18 of season 1 of The Adventures of Superman, The Runaway Robot, and Drums of Death. Until next time, folks, have a good one, and thanks for listening. Bye. Don't miss the next thrill-packed episode in the amazing Man of Screen podcast. The Man of Screen podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all the opinions on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests. All music is in sound clips used in the making of the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network and can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com, and you can email the show at manofscreen at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.